Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Deuce. Hello! Well, happy end of semester. Um, this is going to yes. be our th- third episode about music, I believe. Yep. So, um, <laughs> it's been... So many things. A couple of, yeah, so many. We've talked about a lot of different music things, actually, because there are way more instruments that are way older than I thought there were. Yes. Yeah, music is one of those original art forms, right? Music, mm-hmm. painting. Um, but of course, the interesting thing about cave painting, of course, you can find it because it's in caves where people maybe didn't go after those initial groups that did the paintings. So they're still there. Um or they're in places where just people didn't look or didn't reach, you know. Um, but musical instruments, yeah, the amazing thing that some of them have lasted, basically. Mm-hmm. Like the sort of amazing fact that that is possible. Um, so you don't have to hypothesize because you know that they were there. Um, yeah. Yeah, so we had a whole episode, our whole first episode on old instruments. Our second episode was instruments and... Um, sort of how music works, which is to mm-hmm. say, essentially, right, um, pitch and tuning. Tune, yeah. Um, and so the fact that um, intervals work differently in different scales, right, so quarter tones, half tones, um, and, yeah, tunings, what an interval sounds like. <laughs> um, does it harmonize, basically? Um, and both of those things have a huge impact on how we perceive music. Um, so if we frequently, the use of certain tunings and certain intervals, um, will make us hear something. If we're from the West, if we're from the United States, we will hear something as being either old or potentially um, foreign based on those things, because we are so used to modern Western music, Mm -hmm. which has this very specific tuning, right? Where all intervals kind of work. Um, and we do not use quarter tones or half tones. Um, and so, yeah, so we talked about that. We talked about other Mm -hmm. styles. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's definitely specific ways that if you if you think about tunes that you've heard, um specific ways that things might sound Indian to the the western ear or mm-hmm. you know Chinese um right. and I don't know that, you know, having listened to pop music from both of those countries, it's definitely something that is probably push as much pushed by like Hollywood representations of specific musical cultures, mm-hmm. you know, because often pop music just sounds like pop music, but yeah. Well, also of course, right. Pop music in most places is influenced by the West, right? Yeah. If you go to an true. orchestra anywhere in the world, we talked about the whole piano thing, right? Pianos, not harpsichords, um, mm-hmm. that pianos have a specific tuning and that's just how they are. Um, and so every orchestra in the world is going to have a piano 
right? So unless you're a specific Baroque or early music ensemble where you need to retune yourself, in which case you're using a harpsichord, probably, um, and sometimes you're not using it because you need to retune things. Um, yeah, otherwise, right, anywhere in the world, classical music basically is going to sound this one way. And any mm-hmm. other music that has sort of been written um, in the past couple hundred years. Yeah. Right? Um, but yeah, so what happens is we also then, to th- that's why I said also we tend to think of it as older, right? So it mm-hmm. becomes thought of as sort of historic or as folk music. Um, and that's not necessarily true either, right? Because, of course, we had examples of modern, I mean, there are all these modern musicians who still practice all of these art forms, obviously. There are instruments yeah. that are still used in modern contexts a lot of times, right? Um, and there are starting to be plenty of compositions, even in the West, where people take instruments that can be tuned in other ways, use other tunings, use half tones, use quarter tones. Um, so they're, they're definitely, right, it does still exist. There are people doing this. Um, but yeah, this is part of this history of music. Um, and one of the many, many ways in which sometimes we forget how culturally dominant the West can be and how much it really affects how we perceive the world, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So um, there were some really fun ones, though, about people, of course, have recreated modern instruments um, or recreated ancient instruments and used them in the modern contexts. Um, so all yes. of that is super fun. Yes. Every time um, you find somebody playing a Led Zeppelin song on the shamisen. Yes. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Star Wars, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, and that's, of course, right, the sort of this sort of great reminder of how a lot of these, you know, all these instruments are still phenomenal, right? And they do not have to be relegated to the past or to things like folk music or historic music. Um, but also modern music even modern Western music doesn't have to sound the way we sort of have come to accept it, which is to say, you know, the sort of tuning temperament that we have come to expect um, that you can mess around with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this brings us to one of the other things that we touched on a little bit, but I just figured we'd get a little bit further into, um, and that's notation. Yes. Right. Um, which, of course, the modern musical scale, this is another thing that has helped standardize music, of course. The Western musical scale <laughs> um, is built for Western music, basically, right? Um, for the rhythms and the notes and the pitches and the intervals that we now use in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, before that, <laughs> um, what did people do? Well, um, I think we talked in some of the others that notation is really about rhythm and pitch and pitch isn't necessarily, it doesn't have to be the way we think of it, which is to say we think of something like on pitch. Um, That's not necessarily the point. The point frequently is in fact, more interval than pitch, which is to say it's more important how far apart the notes are than exactly what the note is. Right. What the note is will depend on your vocal type or the instrument you're using. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but it matters that you get the interval right and that you get the rhythm right. Um, and so that and, you know, notes, that's sort of what they were meant to portray. Um, so we actually already talked about this um, last episode of the episode before. 
I, I think, think the we, first... we talked a little bit, I remember, about some of the earliest songs that are like chiseled on people's graves or on a monument somewhere. Yes. Well, we're going to talk about another one. We definitely talked about sort of the earliest one, which is, this was two episodes ago. I think it was in our first episode on music. Um, and the, the Hurry and Hymns from Babylonia, mm-hmm. from Nippur, Babylon, so now Iraq. Um, and yeah, those are inscribed on a cuneiform tablet um, that was found in Syria, um, Ugarit, so roughly 1400 BCE, um, which you'll notice, of course, isn't in some ways that long ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's good. 1400 is pretty good. I mean, that's long a thousand years yeah. before the Greek plays, for example, um, from which we do have some notation. But obviously, it's still, you know, um, it's much, 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 much later. You know, the history of musical instruments goes back, you know, tens of thousands of years. So notation, our earliest notations come come much, much, much later. Um, yeah, and this one, so a nearly complete hymn to the goddess of orchards, Nikal, um, and one tablet preserved the tuning methods for the Babylonian lyre. Of course, with a Y, <laughs> the instrument. <laughs> yes, the tuning methods for Babylon and Lyre. And another th- tablet, the other tablet referred to musical intervals. So hmm. that's what you need, right? You need the tuning <laughs> and the intervals. Yeah. And that essentially gives you, right, um, and what the rhythm comes from the words, right? Um, and this is something that people who have studied older languages – I guess we'll know. Um, anyone who's had to do poetry, we talked about this in that episode, but anyone who has to do poetry has done some of this, like iambic pentameter, right? But of course, the as you sort of go back in time, um, music was very much keyed to the rhythm of the words. Um, and so there's a, you can get a sense of the rhythm from the poetic um, structure of the words. Right. So the same way, you know, I'm back to oh, okay. was this the face that launched a thousand ships? Da 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 That would give you, right, your long shorts mm-hmm. and so on, right? So that would give you your rhythm. Um, so this is essentially what they do, right? So you get your tuning and your intervals and you take your rhythm from the words. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually the notes are actually written like over each syllable. So that's how you know. Um, and so then you, you take it that way. Um, yeah, so we had um, played a tiny bit of um, Michael Levy um, on on his lyre, his ancient lyre, his recreated recreated ancient lyre, of course, is <laughs> modeled after some of the ones they have found that we talked about in that episode. Um, yeah, we played a little bit of him playing it. Um, so that's that's sort of the earliest some of the earliest notation, basically. Um, and here, so just a quick reminder. All right. Mm-hmm. So there we are. Quite fun. Um, so, um, we're going to jump forward in time quite a bit. Um, I know that we have already put up somewhere um, some Greek music, which we definitely talked about in that episode as well. We talked about um, Euripides, um, the chorus in Orestes, um, 
the chorus of furies. And um, so we have that. Uh, it is worth pointing out that although that was written in the 400s, um, the manuscript with the notation is much later. So, um, or the papyrus. Um, but we, so we have that. So we, we have, right, there, we do have music. And this is how we have it, right, is that it tends to be preserved in these ways. Um, but one of the next sort of earliest notations that we have um, are the some Delphic hymns. Um, so Delphi, mm-hmm. of course, is the oracle, Apollo, Apollo's oracle at Delphi, right? Um, and she's quite famous. I mean, <laughs> she's in a lot of stuff. Yes. She's in plays. She's in lots of modern stuff, too. She remains quite famous, I would say. Um, if you ever go to Delphi, the view is the most astonishing, extraordinary thing. I spent like, so much time trying to get a good picture of the view. Um, hmm. And it was sort of explained... I mean, oracles tended to kind of live on the tops of mountains, first of all, because that's where gods are, is, of course, up mountains, you know, like Mount Olympus. Um, sure. The Delphic oracles, like by Mount Parnassus. Um, but, you know, so you're closer to the gods. But also, of course, it's kind of a power play, because people have to, like, walk up the mountain to get to you, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and you can see them coming. And, of course, then if they're famous, you can kind of prep, right? <laughs> so you can be yeah. like, oh, you know, the ambassador from whoever is coming. Um, they're at war right now. I know what they're going to ask about or, you know. So anyway, there are a lot of reasons. Um, those are just the more practical things that could happen. But really, it is sort of, it's about being closer to the gods, but it is also this kind of bit of a power play to be up on a mountain. Um and Delphi, actually, you can see all the way down across the valley to the harbor. I mean, it's just this extraordinary view. It's amazing. It's just phenomenal. It's brilliant and extraordinary. Anyway, I highly recommend it. Um, but there is also, of course, it's a lot of it's really sort of um, well-preserved, but a lot of it is <laughs> now in the museum. So a lot of things you see mm. at the site, some of it's original, but a lot of it is reconstructed or they haven't reconstructed it they've just like shown you what it used to look like and then you go to the museum and you see all the actual um stuff okay and this is of course because you need to protect it basically um but one of these things is um the athenian um treasury so delphi of course you know everyone went to delphi um the athenians athens was big of course um, they built a treasury. Um, you gave money to the gods, but also you stored money, right? Because in temples and stuff, this is how you kept it safe. Um, so they built, so they had okay. this treasury at Delphi, um, and there are two Delphic hymns that were inscribed in the stone. Um, oh. and so, yeah, which is quite fun. Um, and they date to around 128... BCE. Um, and so this is why I say, of course, like Euripides' chorus that we have obviously was written earlier, but the actual record that we have of it is later, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, you know, we know what it was inscribed. Um, and it was for, it was because of a specific performance um, that was sort of for, for the, you know, um, Delphic rites and so on. Um and pro- it's a little unclear. One of them might be from 128 and one from 138. 
the sort of consensus maybe now is that they're actually both from the same year. Um, but either way, and that they were both meant for that performance in that case. Right. Um, but anyway, so they're both, um, mano, monophony, right? Monophonic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so solo, right? Single melody, right? Okay. As opposed to polyphony, of course, poly, polyphony, polyphony, which is multiple melodies, basically. Um, that comes in much later, basically. Um, so most things are going to be monophony at this point. But yeah, so both of these are, um, we know who wrote is, them because, hmm? Oh no, is it likely that most things would have been performed by, like, a single soloist then? Or would you have um, had a choir all singing the same line? Or Either of those things is possible. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it doesn't mean that there's not that there can't be harmony, but there is one melody. So people might be singing it at different intervals. You might have a chord, oh, okay. is my point. Like, you can have a chord. <laughs> um, so if you have a chorus, you could have a chord, right? Sure. Um, but everyone is singing the same melody. Mm-hmm. We're back to pitch and interval, right? People might be yes. on different pitches <laughs> at specific intervals that sound good. However, it's all the same musical line. Is the point, right? The melody, there's only one melody and that's what everyone is singing. There is no harmony. There are not multiple melodies. Yeah. Um, polyphony is independent, right? Interdependent sort of mel- melodies going together, right? Um, so not just yes. harmonizing on a chord, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can have harmonizing on a chord, but you don't have multiple melodies. Um, so the f- we know who wrote them because their names are there. So the first one is a vocal, is vocal notation. So the first one is presumably sung, is sung. Um, and um, Athenaeus, son of Athenaeus, composed it. Um, and the second uses instrumental notation. Um, Lemenios, son of Thoinos, an Athenian, um, wrote that one. Uh, and we can interpret the notation, which of course is the other thing that people are probably wondering. Um based on the fact that there's still fragments of this work um, by Elipius of Alexandria, who was a Greek writer on music. Um, and yeah, I mean, we have some, um, we still have some of his work, basically, right? So he was some a writer on music. So he didn't write music himself. He was like a music critic? Yes. Or something? Like, yep. in the early Grecian, it wouldn't be the New Yorker, it would be like the New Sp- Athenian or whatever, he wrote his little goings on about town column where he talked about different pieces <laughs> that had just yes. been composed. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, the fact that, that text sort of continued to exist um, is how, yeah, is how we still sort of have a sense of what this notation meant, have a sense that one is vocal and one is instrumental, um, and have the ability to um, decipher it, essentially. Cool. And, um, yeah. So, and of course, that's the sort of, that's the problem with musical notation is, is of course, deciphering it. Um, It's the same kind of as an alphabet on some level. Um, So if you're a critic, don't let them tell you that you're doing something that's good for nothing. Obviously, right. at least one critic has done something worthwhile. Yes. 
Um, yeah. And we should point out, by the way, he's in the ADs, right? So he's like sort of, I don't know, say like flourished in the mid 300s or in the 300s AD. Um, okay. Yeah. So he, so that's how, right, he is maintaining this knowledge that is, that has clearly already existed for hundreds of years. Um, but luckily he's writing late enough that we, that we have it. Right. Because yes. probably people were writing before him um, that explain how to read this notation. Um, mm-hmm. The Greeks loved to write stuff. I mean, they wrote about music theory and math and, you know, everything. As we all know, they loved to write about all this mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but it's just lucky that his stuff on notation lasted so that we do recognize it, right? Otherwise, someone would have had to decipher it and figure it out. And there'd be arguments about all of this stuff, right? But um, instead, we, we kind of have a sense. So, um, yeah, these are hymns, of course, to Apollo, basically. Um, the first one's sort of to the muses. Um and yeah, here is Michael Levy again um, on his nice harp. It is, of course, not actually a harp, it's like a kithara. <laughs> Alright, so that's, um, yeah, so that's on the kithara. Um, and you'll notice the first one, even though it, it is vocal notation, so presumably it was actually sung, um, he is, of course, playing it. And you could, of course, sure. accompany yourself, you know. The um, harp or lyre the second one was is, the, it was like an official symbol of Apollo, wasn't it? I think we've talked about that before. Absolutely, so, yeah. yeah. Hermes, I think we mentioned this also, yeah, that Hermes makes it for From him. A turtle shell. Um, and, yes. And this is then the way it does tend to be portrayed in statuary, um, particularly, not always, but like there are plenty of, you know, um, statues where um, I think we talked about sort of sirens and stuff holding, a, and you can tell it's a turtle, turtle shell or tortoise shell um, mm-hmm. lyre, right? And I'll, I'll sometimes like some of the lyre part is missing or, you know, their hand that they would have been playing it with is missing because these things break off statues, but like the turtle shell is still definitely there and very clear, right? Um, but yeah, absolutely. He, he has a liar. He, he always has a variety. I mean, he is, you know, there's so many statues of Apollo, um, and he can have any number of types of liar, right? There's some he's more likely to have, but yeah. Yeah, nice. so you'll notice um, it is, of course, a different sound. Yeah, from the mm-hmm. the previous one, um, it's a bit lighter, a little bit higher. Um, yeah, and it is, you know, this is so it's Greek tuning and um, intervals and so on. And of course, that's going to be a little bit different, particularly at this point. Um, I mean, it's what fifteen hundred mm-hmm. years later, basically thirteen hundred years later. Um, but also. Just because even though, of course, Greece is getting a ton of stuff from the Middle East, they are changing things, right? Um, so it is worth noting that um, one of the things that sort of um, makes this important, of course, is that this is how notation starts to move mm-hmm. its way through the West. Um, and tuning, specifically, um, Pythagorean tuning. So speaking of the Greeks, right? Here's Pythagoras. We mentioned him in the last episode, but... 
um, Pythagorean tuning is especially interested in the intervals, the fifth and fourths, right? So fifths, mm-hmm. a fifth, and a fourth. Uh, and whole steps are also perfectly in tune. But really, it's about the fifths, right? Um, so as it happens, fifths, fourths, and whole steps are perfectly in tune. The third is not. The third sounds mm-hmm. wide to us. Um, and Pythagorean tuning is what makes it through the Middle Ages, basically. Um so we talked about this and how, as you get into the Middle Ages, of course, it starts to shift. You start to get all these multiple tunings we talked about last time and temperaments and so on. But um, this is, you know, this is where the Middle Ages starts, is with Pythagorean tuning. Um, and with notation, it's moved on a little bit from, or starts to move on from what, you know, we had, what we had mm-hmm. written on the treasury, <laughs> um, the Delphic treasury, um, and what Olympias had told us about. Um and we start getting uh, notation specifically for plain chant eventually, or okay. plain song. This is, of course, also um, a single melody, right? So, monophony. Um, and the rise of, of its own notation happens kind of the 9th and 10th century. So it's starting basically oh, in the wow. 800s, right? Um, so you can see, yeah, you know, our nice text about notation from kind of the 300s. Um, so we're about 500 years on, and the Middle Ages is starting to record, or at least we we have. I mean, so this is always stuff that's extant. Like, so you never know what was destroyed yeah. or what we might still find. But <laughs> um, basically, um, we're starting to get our the rise of notation that is really for mm-hmm. chant, um, plain chant or plain song. Um, and so this is Noom. Um, that's N-E-U-M-E. Um, and it's probably mnemonic. So this is actually, um, in some ways interesting. This is a little bit different because, um, notation, of course, in the Greek world and before, Mm -hmm. right? Um, in, in Babylon, um, obviously it wasn't just mnemonic because they're telling you about tuning. They're telling you about, you know, um, things you, you need to Mm -hmm. know to play it. So they are expecting you might not automatically know these things, right? It's not that you just need to be remembered. It's like, to play this one, here's your tuning, right? Um, And then here's how it goes, right? Um, And so um, the idea, right, at this point, first of all, Mm -hmm. this is solely vocal. Um, So this isn't instrumental, but you'll notice the other two, like we had, we did have instrumental and we did have vocal. Um, And here, right, this is just really for vocal and it's to remember it's just to remember something you already know but we've gotten to the point where you're supposed to know enough different melodies that maybe you need some help uh-huh. basically <laughs> although actually it's also possible that the reason it started was because um uh diversity actually which is to say that there's so many things going on in so many different places that you are from like Metz is one of the places that this sort of Maybe starts. Um, and Metz is one of the bilingual cities. And um, so, like, German-French. And you, um, you know, hear some French monks doing a chant. And you're like, oh, that's a great melody. Mm-hmm. I want to remember that, right? <laughs> um, and so you write it down. Um, and so this really interesting sense, right, that um, as sort of travel 
happens and things become a little more diverse and international and so on. Um, you know, at the church, of course, you're always going everywhere. Like you train in one place and you end up living somewhere else the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, cause you get sent, you know, you go where you get sent, you go where there's room, you go where a monastery needs people. Um, you know, so you bring stuff with you, you hear new stuff, you want to remember things, right? So, um, there's also definitely that sensibility behind it, right? Trying to remember stuff you've heard somewhere that you've been, or someone who visited you, you brought along a great new tune, you want to write it down. Um, so it's, but nonetheless, right, that you've already heard it. So you don't need to, this doesn't need to be someone who's going to come along and read it and have to learn it just from the notes. It's to remind you who's already heard it, what it, okay. what it sounded like. Right. So it's, so it's probably largely mnemonic. Um, Gregorian chant, of course, is the most famous, <laughs> um, plain chant, plain song. Named for Pope you know, Gregory? It is. it is. He didn't invent it, but it is absolutely named for him. Pope Gregory the First, Saint the Great, etc. Um, he's, you know, the f- end of the 500s, mm-hmm. so like 540, 604. So, um, so that's the best known. Um, there's also Ambrosian chant in Milan oh. for Ambrose, of course, um, who, you know, he's like 340, 397. He baptizes Augustine, of course, saint of Hippo. I was thinking of um, Ambrose Beers, but and he was that, <laughs> he's a later. Bit more yeah. <laughs> Although that would be awesome. Yeah. But yeah, so Ambrose in Milan. Um, yeah, so he's got his own chant. Um, and there are others as well. That we'll, we'll get a little bit too. But anyway, so here's where we get into it. This is probably what people expected when we first said we were doing yes. <laughs> medieval music. Is probably this right here. Okay. So, chant. We all know, right? So, sing a melody. You've all heard it. We'll, we'll hear a little bit later. But um, it's super famous. And for some reason, was it like in the 90s when suddenly, like, Gregorian chant was like... Yeah, I remember my dad had some um, CDs of it that he would listen to. Yes. It, like, it's one of those weird things in history. Okay. And I don't mean, I mean yes. modern history. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, because back when it was happening, it was not weird. Um, it's still not weird. It's just weird that it became a pop culture phenomenon. Yeah. Anyways, so, um, yeah, what we have is, for Gregorian chant, um, and for Ambrosian, um, essentially, right, the single line of melody and you hear all right all the voices going together so they are they are um harm right there is harmony there are chords but there's just the one melody um all right but you obviously have the different vocal lines that we all know of today which is to say essentially right it's all Mm -hmm. male um nuns do sing but this is not them at the moment um and what we have here of course is um yeah basically tenor baritone bass (laughs) counter tenor um yeah which at the time of course yeah i mean you one of the things you do have in the church is castrati um that happens you know it's it's never really allowed oh but it happens all the way through the last castrato um, died the, in like the, relatively recently as these things go yes he's actually on record although the record it's not clear i mean he was definitely presumably past his prime by the time mm-hmm. he got recorded so yeah we'll We'll link to him, but um, it's not clear that that's really a good. Uh, it's not clear that that's a good recording of what Castrati really sounded like, mm. because it is so late for him, and you know, um, I mean, recording technology was early, and he was 
<laughs> old. So basically, a bad combination. Um, those two things put together. Yes, it's it, it that. So this is not um, obviously. I mean, a boys' choir today, which you do hear, right? Like the Saint Paul mm-hmm. Boys' Choir or something. They still exist. Um, that's what Chris Stratti sounded like. I mean, and that was the point, of course, is that then you would keep that boy soprano sound. Um, but yeah, it wasn't what you have to do to get it, which of course is where the name comes from, Is was not sanctioned officially by the church so people would have, you know, quote-unquote accidents. <laughs> like, you'd fall yes. off a horse. The horse one was the big one, usually, yeah. But anyway, um, so yeah, so that that's a thing, but... You know, monasteries don't necessarily have that going, right? It's going to be more tenor, baritone bass. Castrati <laughs> um, come in a little bit... I mean, boys' choirs are always sort of around, but really they become super popular later, mm-hmm. actually. They become rock stars much later, really. I mean, really like in the Renaissance is when yeah. they become rock stars. Um, so that's, you know, so that's later. But, um, but I, you know, we want to mention it. All right. So... Um, what we have for chant, um, there's so call and response essentially. So there's responsorial singing, um, where you might have a soloist who sings and then the chorus responds with a refrain, um, or a chorus sings the verse and the congregation responds okay. with a refrain. Right. Um, so you know the refrain could even be like a fancy "Amen." We've mm-hmm. all heard that. Um. It could be a little bit longer. Um, if you are part of a religion that has a liturgy that does this, you've you've done it. <laughs> um, you know, and it's worth pointing out a lot of this does probably on some level or at least have certain roots in um, the liturgy, mm-hmm. in Jewish liturgy from the synagogue, right? Um, and so if one has gone to synagogue, even today, one has done this, right? The chorus responds with certain words at different times, right? We all know what they are. Certainly mass, similar, mm-hmm. right? There are traditions that still absolutely do this. Um, so that's, that's right, response. Um, so And that's a big one in Gregorian chant. It's very much built around that sort of idea. Um, it also can include, but was really, really prevalent in Ambrosian chant, and he's kind of... Mm, is he sort of given credit for inventing it, maybe, or for popularizing it more? Maybe not for inventing it, I mean, because he didn't, but <laughs> for um, maybe for popularizing in chant what is known as antiphonal mm. singing. Um, so antiphonal singing, it does exist in Gregorian chant, but uh, it's it's one of the things that people see as kind of a difference between Ambrose and Gregorian. It's just that Ambrose really embraced it and kind of popularized it, um, and Gregorian is a little more into the response um, but there is, of course, antiphonal singing as well. Um, and antiphonal singing really okay. just means alternated. So, um, the chorus might be split in half, for example, and sing alternating verses. Right? So it's still a kind of call and response, but it's a much fuller. Okay. Right? It's more of a, right? <laughs> you know, so you're really both, everyone's equally alternating mm-hmm. singing stuff back and forth. Um, so that's antiphonal singing um that becomes a really kind of a primary mode of um chant in the middle ages it becomes a primary mode of singing in the middle ages this is not to be confused with an antiphon um which of course is kind of where it comes from but um the an antiphon is just a short refrain (laughs) so antiphonal singing is this like alternated really Mm -hmm. full-on 
beyond call and response, call and response, the response is pretty short, right? This is like full on, I will sing now, and now I will sing. This, of course, gets worked into like dramas mm-hmm. later and stuff, right? Like liturgical dramas, you know, so I will sing, now I will sure. sing. And now it is my turn again, and now it is my turn again to sing. I mean, that's just an opera at that point. Basically, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, as opposed to sort of call and response would be like, I am singing because I'm the soloist, or I'm mm-hmm. the chorus, and I'm singing, singing, it's more singing. like Handel's Messiah. And now yeah. the audience responds. Yeah. It's like, and now we respond as an audience. And then sing, 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 sing. And now we respond as an audience. Right. So that that's sort of the call and response where you get a short response or a shorter response, and it's a sort of specific, single, mm-hmm. simple response. And antiphonal singing is the full-on, like, this half of the chorus sings, then this half of the chorus sings, and, it, you know, you put them in the rafters so that the whole church sounds like it's, yeah. you know, I mean, the music of the spheres, right? It's all going to God, yeah. Um, but yeah, that should not be <laughs> confused with an antiphon, which is just a short refrain. Um, and so that... An antiphon is frequently the text of a psalm, for example. It can be sung between or before or after mm-hmm. other things. So it's a short, short refrain that comes in amongst other stuff. You might sing a psalm, and then there'll be a quick antiphon, mm-hmm. right? You'll get a line, and then you'll transition to something else. Um, yeah, and that also quite possibly actually has its roots in synagogue liturgy, Jewish liturgy, where, of course, psalms were sung and so on. So where a lot of these... These chants were performed as part of a mass rather than as like a musical performance. Um, it feels like a weird question. Yes, yeah, but this is all religious. We, yeah. there, we have talked about religious music, but also that the Greek theater used music. Technically yep. not a religious ceremony yes. the way we would think of it. Right. Yeah. Um, right. It is sort of, of course... Um, to Dionysus, but also, yeah, you know, in many ways is not as well. Um, yes, although it, you know, kind of originates, it originates more obviously as a religious ritual where there is a Mm -hmm. big chorus singing, and that continued. You know, the big chorus was always singing. You know, and theater had a smaller chorus and also characters. And, um, yeah, so here, yeah, this is all religious. Um, and this, we will talk about secular music as well, um, Secular music and religious music did have different forms, mm-hmm. usually. So, yeah, chant is religious. And, yes, it's, um, it is worth pointing out, of course, that the mass is only one. It's the part of the liturgy we're the most familiar with mm-hmm. today. Um, but if you're in a monastery or a convent, um, you are doing the oh, hours. Yeah. Right. So at all times of day, every day you have a service, mm-hmm. basically, that you need to sing. Um, and so, yes. So it, it but the, yeah, they, this is all they talked about that a little yeah. bit in The Name of a Rose. That different yep. <laughs> times of day when they do the service, um, which varies, yes. I guess, according to the latitude and time of year, but usually, like, something before dawn, something around six... Is there is yeah. there one in the mid morning and then like noon and mid afternoon? Oh yeah, there are lots yeah. of hours all day. I guess that's why they yeah. have books yeah. of hours to like, so everybody could follow yes. along. <laughs> yep, that is what happens. Um, and yeah, that's yeah, that is exactly sort of the um, 
yeah. So then you're just sort of going going on and on and on. Um, yeah, and they're all they're all the hours, um, and we can list them off if we. <laughs> You know, it's in the it's in the four the, the four notes. If you have a copy of the name of the rose lying around, and I bet most, I bet you do because it was such a massive bestseller. Everybody has a copy, but yes, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And of course, I mean, it still exists. It's worth pointing out. I mean, this is still a thing you do if you do this if you are a monk or a nun or so on. Um, but yeah, matins. And the thing is, you know, we, we know some of these words, of course. Some of them we know better than others. But yeah, matins is the early mm-hmm. one that's sort of before dawn. Um, lauds, prime, terce, sext. So we're working yeah. through the day, right? Lauds is basically dawn-ish. Prime is early morning. Terce is mid-morning. Sext, it's the sixth hour, of course, but it's, you know, noon-ish. Known, ninth hour, sort of mid-afternoon vespers is probably the most famous of course because they're you know people might do that today sure just because i mean you might go to vespers just because you want to um but that also you know for certain there's a bond stuff, girl named vesper um, too wasn't there <laughs> was she ves she must have been vesper hopefully she was vesper not vespa <laughs> i'm not actually sure she could have been vespa that would be yeah, more hilarious and kind of in keeping with Bond. Vesper Lind in um, Casino I think Royale. Okay, yes. she is Vesper. Okay, I also have to say because of course James Bond is British, I was never yes. quite sure, and so I did really think sometimes he was Vespa. I mean, they're in Italy for a chunk yeah. of that one, right? Um, yeah. So <laughs> I was just like Vespa. <laughs> she said Vespa, <laughs> but he was saying Vesper. Well, okay, the first, the first, no hard American R. So you can't be sure. Royale was a parody, so they might have been saying Vespa, but in the, the <laughs> maybe no. But this is no, no. It's a it's a solid. I mean, it's you know, Daniel Craig's yes. outing is Bond. He's he's a fantastic Bond. Um, but yeah, so Vespers. That's the evening. Um, and people go to Vespers and, yeah, for festivals and things, it can still be a very important one to go to. Um, and then Compline mm-hmm. is the night. Um, yeah, so those are all still out there. Yeah, but so you see that basically you're doing the liturgy all day long, so you... They have a lot of music. You know, there's That's another reason why you, uh, yeah, you ultimately need mm-hmm. to start writing it down, because obviously, you know, you're doing it all day. Um, but here we have, so this is Sequentia um, doing a... Um, Gallican chant. So that's Gaul, which of course means um, kind of Germany and some of France and that big swath of Europe that was that. Mm-hmm. that. <laughs> um, yes. So, um, yeah. So that's obviously, right, what we're sort yeah. of familiar with um, when we think of chant, right? And you hear the resonance. Yeah, it sounds like right? they're in a cathedral. You get those overtones. Yeah. Because if you nail your your chords just right, you get overtones. Yeah. All right. So there we are. Um, that will link to the, um, that's in, that's from a manuscript. Um, that is in Paris, of course, at the BN. Um, it's manuscript lat, 
um, and we'll link to it. And it's full of notation. I mean, it's it's an entire manuscript of it. Um, It's from the 11th century. Right. So pretty quickly after they start writing things down, they they keep going. (laughs) So um, you get a lot of stuff written down. But yeah, so there we are. So chant. um, And of course, that's another form. So it's not Gregorian or Ambrosian. But yeah, there we are. Um, So as I said, that's 11th century is worth pointing out, of course, um, that was we move through the 11th, say, into the 12th century. Um, we've talked a lot about Hildegard already. Uh, we have talked about the Ordo. Um, we have, we'll link to episode 6. Uh, we talked about the fact that um, she not only uses sort of really cutting-edge musical forms, right? She's a nun. She's, and she, what she's working with here um, is not liturgical, right? This is a drama. This is like the earliest music drama that we've got in the West. Um, and it, we know who wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> Hildegard wrote it. And um, she actually suggests, um, and we know, right, the manuscript of it was presumably prepared under her um, authority, basically, right? Under her supervision. So, um, you know, presumably the things in the manuscript are things she wanted. And there are actual notations by some of the um, characters um, so we'll point out, I think I usually link to this page cause I like it so much, um, where Anima, who is our hero, the soul, um, where she, she is, there's something she's supposed to sing, um, mm-hmm. happily, Felix. Um, and so that idea, right. We're so, so accustomed, obviously musical theater today that you invest everything with emotion. Um, that was not a concept mm-hmm. at the time. The idea that music had character and emotion, Right, so Hildegard really helps give us that um, in the Ordo, but we have talked about that extensively, so I figured we would not spend as much time yeah. on it here. But I do want to re-mention it because it's yeah. important. <laughs> um, also worth mentioning is um, there is another sort of musical form that is dramatic, that is known as the planctus, uh, which means lament. Uh, the most famous ones are usually. Like the the Planctus Mariae, um, which means, of course, the lament of of Mary. Mary could be the Virgin, or the mm-hmm. Magdalene, or sometimes some of the other Marys who show up at the tomb. Um, but generally, right, the Virgin, the Magdalene are the two big ones, um, and that's that becomes an entire sort of dramatic form, um, and that's a really sort of important element as well as you go through um, you'd mentioned the Greeks right and of course this is something that happens is as with them right the the myth this is a myth but it is one that a lot of the Greeks themselves believed right um, which is to say so even about a hundred years after Greek theater started like in the you know so the you know around mm-hmm. 400 basically so Greek theater starts somewhere in the 500s <laughs> we have the plays from the 400s Aristotle starts writing in the 300s. Um, we're counting backwards. Uh, by the time we get to Aristotle, you know, it's already a myth, but it's one that they believed, but that a lot of Greeks believed. Um, and, you know, we Athenians, basically. Um, that one of the big dithyrambic choruses um, that was, you know, singing hymns to Dionysus and whoever, um, for, you know, but in the, right, for, it's the festival for Dionysus, um, that the lead soloist or there was a lead soloist. So like someone stepped out from the chorus and decided to like do a call and response so that this is how theater started and that his name was Thespis, which is why we have thespians. Right. Um, yeah. And so 
that Thespis might well have been a real person. This is presumably a little bit mythic, um, but, you know, um, it's a great story. And it it's sort of interesting because it does give the sense that they themselves, right, Athenians themselves had this sense of theater having developed this way. Um, and it does happen a little bit, not exactly, right? Things never really de- we had a I had a rant earlier some episodes ago about evolution. Oh that yes, happens in science and biology, but not in art. <laughs> um, but it is worth pointing out that yeah, I mean, in some ways, something sort of similar happened. You're doing all this liturgical work, and eventually, you are like, it doesn't just have to be for the liturgy. We can dramatize stuff. Um, but of course, other people are are also doing that or already doing that. You're definitely looking to the secular world a little bit. Um, you know, there are all these cross influences. So things don't exactly evolve. But what one of the things that does happen, for example, with Hildegard, right? This, this is, she does write something that is not liturgical. It is a story with characters who sing, right? It is a play that is sung, which today we would call mm-hmm. a musical or an opera. <laughs> uh, we call it a music drama for the Middle Ages. But um, yeah, so this, this is, becomes a format that is sort of well known. Um, the liturgical, there is the liturgical sort of visit, right, that you do as part of like the Easter liturgy, where you do talk about all this, that is sung, but then there were separate sung dramas or sung performances where you might have, you know, the someone portraying the Virgin sing a, a lament, right? Um, there's a really, really famous 14th century um, Planctus that is a sung play uh, with several characters. It's got the Virgin, the Magdalene, Another Mary, Mary Jacobi, um, and John. <laughs> and um, it does, you know, um, it's, yeah, it's a lament. So they're all, they're all lamenting. Um, and it has incredible stage directions, <laughs> like between every line. So it's not just that the music is there. Every line of text has its music and also oh. stage directions, which is really kind of incredible. Yeah. So um, there's this really, really interesting sense of, um, you know, what Hildegard did really, really mm-hmm. caught on, basically. Um, yeah, and so that's that's what you get then. And you have this sort of really fascinating um, moment of <laughs> um, a lament with all of these stage directions. And, um, you know, so things like the, the Magdalene, right, with arms outstretched, she turns herself to the congregation then to the women, right? And then she's singing her first line. Then she beats her breast, singing her next line. Then she raises her hands, singing wow. her next line, right? Bows head, prostrates self. Yeah. Um, and then, right, the virgin does hers, then John. So this is um, this is a little bit mm-hmm. like an ordo, which was, ordo meant order, right? So one person comes after the other to sing. Um, but they're all kind of there enacting this moment of sorrow. Um yeah, so you start to get these really interesting dramatic forms as well. Um, and that's, the, I don't know if I mentioned, that's the Cividale Planctus. Um, Cividale del Friuli is in sort of way northeastern Italy by Slovenia today. Um, so that's where that that's where that's from. Um, but yeah, so you start to get these really interesting dramatic forms that show up. Um, and they're still using, generally, um, single melodies. We're still in that you know, we haven't quite gotten to polyphony, um, but we're really branching out on what you can okay. do um, and and what, what you've got. <laughs> yeah, for um, for forms, right? What, what they can do, what they're for. Um, 
so moving through this, of course, uh, we might give troubadours at some point their own thing, maybe with courtly love. But I want to give another shout out to Adam Della Hall, who we have mentioned before, and we mentioned, um, we've definitely mentioned before. Um, I think the Mayday episode includes. Did we mention um, some games? And I think we might talk about him. Definitely, maybe in our mm-hmm. games episode, we talked about him. Anyway, but he wrote um, a Robin and Marion, for example. Oh yeah, that that did come up in the Mayday episode. Yeah, and um, he's he's fantastic, right? Um, and he sort of twelve forty twelve eighty seven. He unfortunately dies abroad with his prince, who he's followed, um, and you know that is very sad. But <laughs> uh, he does not mm-hmm. get forgotten, right? Um, and so his his stuff is still around, um, including the music. Um, and so we link to that. So we'll relink to that. Um, but he's he's a phenomenal sort of example because he is also actually incorporating a little bit of folk music, which is wonderful. Um, just because, and of course also court court music. Um, he is you know he is a troubadour in many ways, but also you know he does follow his um, leader basically <laughs> um, abroad. Sadly, sadly dying there. I mean, it's fine that he went, but. Um, you know, so he he does have sort of all these multiple forms that he's working with, and he's putting them together in sort of wonderful ways. Um, and so that is a reminder, right? That secular music is is phenomenal, um, and extraordinary things are happening there, right? But if you think of it kind of like rock and roll, um, you know, what would happen if we if none of that had been written down, and so all we had from that period were. Um, you know, the classical compositions from like the middle mm-hmm. of the 20th century. Right. Um, and so the fact that we managed to have someone like Adam Della Hall is fantastic, right? That that's how important he was that he survived essentially that his, uh, that his work survived. Yes. Um, anyway. And so, so how, how important that that is. Um, so he's also a great sort of comment. So we'll give a shout out to him. Um, yeah. And and his sort of his sensibility, um, and he's he's definitely not alone, but he's a great great example of of what's going on in in the secular world, basically. Um, yeah. So um, and if, and also especially Arras. I mean, he's from Arras, which I think we talked about as well. But it's it's a hotbed of stuff happening. So um, it is today part of France. It's really its own thing at the time, and it's just like some incredible troubadours are coming through. Um, they're from there. They're, there's a like great confraternity of them. Yeah, so it's a lot of stuff happening. But he's a great example as well. Um, yeah, so episode 31, oh, okay. he's, he's discussed. All right, so um, a quick note um, that sort of modern terminology, at this point, we've gotten to a point, right, we, we have a lot of stuff going on. We got to start using terms to refer to it. <laughs> so approximately sort of, um, Adam Del Hall, by the way, he's in the mm-hmm. 1200s, right? So I think I said 1240, sort of 1287-ish. Um, so he, starting sort of end of the 1100s, um, around 1170, moving up kind of into the 1300s, we have what's sort of known as the the old art, Ars Antiqua, and that is particularly kind of Notre Dame school of polyphony. So we've gotten to polyphony, but now we have this first part of polyphony that starts kind of right in the 1100s um, and goes sort of through the beginning of the 1300s. And that's going to be sort of the, the old form where we get sort of the early development of things like troubadours, 
right? Um, as we come to know them at their height um, later in the Middle Ages a little bit, and things like the motet, right? So these secular forms that are now important enough to be written down and to be composed by people who are important, but not not religious figures, right? Important secular figures. So just like there used to be writers who were important mm-hmm. and writing things down, who are secular, now we have musicians and composers who are writing things down, who are important enough that their music has lasted, right? Um, so we are seeing, we're starting to see secular music that is regarded on that level, right? Um, and that we still study today. So here we are naming it. Uh, eventually, of course, we'll get Ars Nova, which New. will start the 1300s and move on, right? New art, yeah. And that'll be the next sort of, um, you know, whatever, the next batch mm-hmm. of polyphony, <laughs> the next the next um, sort of innovations of, of polyphony. Um, but anyway, so having brought up the motet, um, the motet is like the catch-all phrase in some ways for what happens to polyphony at this point. <laughs> um it's the big thing that's going on, um, and there are a lot of different forms. But the point is that it is polyphony. <laughs> um, it there's a train. <laughs> I thought that was the yes. music for a minute. Sorry. That. Nope. That's of a train. Okay. It should should stop. In a Good second. overtones. Pause. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It's it's got great great sound. Um. All right, so it'll probably go past, so it'll, you'll hear it underneath. But, all right. So, the motet is polyphony, um, multiple voices, and it can, it's generally secular, it certainly can be religious, but is not necessarily, is not liturgical, right? So, the text can be whatever. I mean, the text can be a religious text, it can be a secular text. Generally, people are writing them, sometimes, you know, frequently you have singer-songwriters, right? So frequently people are writing a text and setting it to music, but you might also have someone who is writing a text and someone else is setting it to music. Of course, these things happen. Uh, But generally speaking, um, there are, for example, (laughs) um, you might have a sort of three-voice motet, a single text, but three voices, right? Polyphony. Um, You can have a double motet where you're going to have more than one text being sung. What? Yeah. Um... Two voice motet. Okay, so there, there are a lot of variations, but essentially this is um, our big experiment, kind of in polyphonic forms, <laughs> the motet. Um, so the early motet, um, we have. So that is a single text, three voice motet, right? Can we hear all the voices? Let's see. All right. And so hopefully you can hear that they're, of course, singing different melodies, right? We have actual different. <laughs> um, there's not just one line that everyone is singing the same melody. We've got multiple stuff going on there. Yeah. Um, all right. So this is, of course, what we mean when we say singing mm-hmm. harmony today <laughs> is that you are singing a different set of notes, right? Not just a different pitch, but different intervals and rhythms and so on. Um, all right. So that's, um, that is that one. Um, here is our double motet. Uh-huh. 
so that time um you can sort of hear um hopefully right um that you got multiple mm-hmm. texts going on also right <laughs> so not just polyphony but sort of multiple multiple texts um, and i should say this is from um this was i think created partly for um but this is the um Hillard Ensemble, who I think created this specifically for um, a book, a text, um, Music of the Middle Ages, an anthology for performance and study by David Wilson. And, you know, um, a lot of these things come with CDs. And this, so this is the Hillard Ensemble doing it for for this. Um, So we might run into some others as well. Um, But anyway, so this is, um, you know, the Notre Dame school, right? The sort of early polyphony. Um, yeah. So there we go. Um, those were some fun ones. Let's see. We also have a two-voice motet, which we'll do real fast. Alright. So that's just the voice and then kind of the other underneath. Um, yeah. Um, and that can be just, it can be an instrumental underneath, it can be... So that's sort of the simplest. Um, all right, so there we go. <laughs> um, that's our that's a, our early motet. Um, so we're going to give a shout out now to um, the what I know is kind of the fixed forms, the form fixe, um, which the, so this is generally French. Um, it's the rondo, the virelay, and the ballade. Um, sometimes, if people are just being sort of general about it, they might throw in like. Italian madrigals or the Spanish contiga, which we actually talked about last time. Um, but it, technically, this is about the French forms that are going on at the time. But really, what it just means is, um, unlike the motet, which, as you can tell, could kind mm-hmm. of be anything, right? We're, experimenting, we're experimenting with polyphony. So a motet is kind of polyphony, early polyphony <laughs> going on. But there are a lot of different possibilities. Um, what we're doing now is we're getting set forms, right? I mean, fixed forms, that's what it's called. So um, basically, it's like a sonnet, right? Uh, there are rules for a sure. sonnet. There's a Shakespearean sonnet, there's a Petrarchan sonnet, there are rules. So you got to follow your rules. Um, so it's the same thing, except also with music. So the poetry, so the, it is a poetic form that has rules, like a sonnet, and then the music that goes with it also has rules, oh, yeah. essentially, right? Like, you, you know, you have your poetic form that you set to music, right? Um, and so... That is why they're. Fixed. I've heard about rondos. <laughs> I don't think I've seen a virili in yeah. the wild. Yes, um, yeah, and of course rondo. So a lot of these terms you'll notice get they they keep going after they've sort of done their work in the Middle Ages. So like eventually you get like rondo. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean that shows up. It keeps going. Um, but yeah, it should be pointed out a virile is not a lay, right? A lay is just a sort of narrative. Um, a lay is basically a narrative poem mm-hmm. that is set to music, <laughs> right? It's a lyric. It's a lyric. It's a lyric. A poem. It's a lyrical poem, but several stanzas of whatever forms, sort of lyrical narrative poem. Um, and it's it is supposed to be set to music. Eventually, though, a lot. What happens to a lot of these things is eventually that music goes away and people just write them as poetry. Um, so we're being specific. Also, a ballad is not a ballad, oh, okay. right? Because again, a ballad is any song basically. That is, I mean, it does have specific forms these days. You know, ballad is a specific type of story, basically. But a ballad is more specific. So we'll get to that. Um, but yeah, so Rondo. So we're going to give a shout out to Guillaume, um, French um, composer. 
um, 1300s. He's alive for a big chunk of them, sort of 1300-ish to mm-hmm. 1377. Um, Guillaume de Mechaud. Um, and yeah, so Guillaume de Mechaud is um, a really great example. He does all this stuff. <laughs> he does them all, all of our forms. We're going to listen to some of them. Um, so the Rondeau that we're listening to, actually, um, my end is my beginning. And it's the text itself sort of um, doesn't make fun, but comments on the form. So I'm not going to go super into this. I think we're going to have to put it up online or also you, people can go to the Wikipedia page. Um, because unlike a sonnet, we can be like yeah. A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the scheme for this is kind of well, weird. Rondos um, are like... They're like villanelles in that they have words that come back kind of as a refrain um, later on. Yes, so lines that come back as a refrain. So this one in English, Mm -hmm. you'll hear it when I just say, right, this one in English is, my end is my beginning, and my beginning, my end. And this holds truly, my end is my beginning. So notice my end is my beginning just came back around. Um, My third melody, three times only, reverses itself and thus ends. My end is my beginning, and my, oh my beginning God. is my end. So we've just repeated the first That's two. That's so yeah. meta. So he has put to text. Yes, yes, exactly. He has put it to text. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then he does it in the music as well, of course, is the point, right? Very nice. <laughs> that is the point. Yeah. So here we go. Let's see. All right. Um, so this is put up by um, Jordan Alexander Key. And um, yeah, this is, <laughs> um, it's just, you know, it's a great um, all around excellent. I want to say we're definitely going to link to this and people should check out that video. Um, it's my show's Rondo 14. Um, my end is my beginning. Um, of course, I mean, in French. So, um, so, mon fin et mon commencement. Um, and the the video that accompanies it is the music notation, the modern, you know, it's been transcribed. But um, it the video um, animates it going past as they sing it. And because he reverses it as the lines themselves come, oh. like, repeat, um, the animation kind of okay. shows you what's going on. So it's, so I recommend cool. it. Yeah. Anyway, so here's just a tiny, tiny bit more. And that's actually from a section when the music then looks like it's going backwards because you're reversing it, right? When he says reverses itself mm-hmm. and thus ends, like, then they are re- reversing the, nice. the line. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So Rondo is our fun, you can tell, right? We started with Motet, you know, polyphony sort of figuring itself out, and now we're just on it. We're doing crazy stuff. We're going backwards and forwards and all over the place and interweaving. Um yeah, so super fun. All right, so um, the virilet has three stanzas and a refrain. Okay. Generally. So that's that's basically the point here, right? So um, it's more like, you know, I mean, it's a, 
it's not a sonnet, but in the sense that, you know, a sonnet does Shakespearean, certainly, right? You get those mm-hmm. kind of three, and then you get your um, couplet. So that's not what's going on. But yeah, you three stanzas and I a mean, refrain. I mean, three stanzas and a refrain um, could be a modern pop song, honestly. Yes, which is sort of hilarious, yeah. Um, and so there, I do want to say there are always variations, right? So you're going to f- run into things that have, you know, more stanzas or have other things. I mean, so... Mm-hmm. Yes, there are always variations, even though they're supposed oh, to be fixed. Poets. Ah. You know, people are always going to mess with stuff. Yeah. You learn the rules and then you break them. <laughs> yeah. But, um, nonetheless, here we are. Yeah. Um, so here's one. Um, again, this is um, a show. Um, yeah. Here we go. Um, this is a group. Uh, this is Cantata Profana. Haha. <laughs> um, and this is live at Hear Arts in New York. I'm a fan of Hear Arts. They do great stuff. So, yeah, I recommend them. All right. So here we go. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. So you'll notice that we have some of our instruments that mm-hmm. we have talked about. Yay! It's all coming together. Um, yeah. Yes. So that is a fun part. Um, yeah. So we have the viol, uh, lute, and percussion. Yeah. And of course, voices. We do have a woman singing, which you could absolutely have, right? None. Again, even in religious context, nuns absolutely did sing. Um, and then in secular context, of course, you can have women singing. So. So, um, yep. And, you know, this is also about a woman, so there you go. All right. Um, so that's, you know, we're starting to get into, I think, what people think of as medieval music. We did have some ensembles last time, like some sort of dance, and we did hear mm-hmm. a cantiga, which, of course, is the sort of Spanish fixed form. Um, but now we're really, right, here we are. This is sort of getting into the secular music that we all kind of know um, and generally, yeah, think of when people say this. Um all right, and then finally a ballad, <laughs> still in the show, right? Because that's that's who you got. Um, I mean, th- you have other people, but he's he's a good one. Um, he did it all. You can kind of listen and compare his his different forms. Um, this is Liber Ensemble for Early Music, formerly um, Liber Unusualis. Huh? Um, Alright, so this one also, by the way, has great animation. Um, so you can see the lines going by as they're singing them. A ballad is usually in three eight-line stanzas, each ending with a refrain. Um, and then the stanzas are frequently followed by a sort of four-line concluding stanza. Um, this one has a rhyme scheme that you can sort of recognize potentially, um, which would be something like A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, which is the refrain. Um, a, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, which is the refrain. <laughs> um, it's a capital C in the text, right? Um, A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, B, C, B, C. Um, again, of course, there are variations with more stanzas. Um, but you'll notice in this one, one of the points, of course, of things when they show up in French or Spanish or Italian is that it's very hard to do them in English, mm-hmm. right? 
um, the number of rhymes you'd have to have for B, I think it's like 14 or something. Anyway, um, you know, English just <laughs> doesn't rhyme that way. So there are people who do it. I mean, obviously, then English poets are like, I'm going to show off how good I am, and I'm going to do this rhyme. I'm going to have 14 rhymes. Um, but it tends to be harder to do in, in English. Yeah. So here's a little bit more of... So there we so are. There we are. Uh, and then, and then finally, finally, we're going to end. Um, this is, I mentioned we heard a little bit of Cantiga last time. Um, so in Italy, you might be wondering, we've done all this France. Um, you have the Madrigal. This is the Trecento Madrigal. That means the 1300s or the 14th century. Um, this is different from the Renaissance Madrigal. Um, this is, again, they're figuring it out. So this madrigal is kind of like what the motet is to the later forms, right? It shares a term with the later sort of Renaissance madrigal, but, well, Renaissance mm -hmm. Baroque, really. Baroque madrigal. But um, it's different. It's two to three voices, um, and it's it has a much different sound. Um, it comes in sort of specific sections. The Rossi Codex, Rossi, Rossi Codex, um, compiled around 1370, has a lot of madrigals. Uh, it has 37 secular musical works in total. It's it's a partial, you know, manuscript and it's missing folios and stuff. But um, still, I mean, 37 secular musical works. Um, wow. Most of them are madrigals, and so it's it's one of the early mm -hmm. sources, right? There are just there. It was the first one sort of discovered, and now there are a couple others. But it's one of the early sources, really, from the time of 14th century Italian music. Um, you know, I mean, yeah. you can say, like, here it is. So it's happening when it's being written, when it's recorded. Um, so they're among the earliest sources for secular, secular, right, <laughs> um, polyphony in, in Italian music. Um, and so here, I figure just sort of a quick example um, of of a madrigal, um, a trecento madrigal. Um, this is Francesco Landini. Um, and... Again, Jordan Alexander Key, who we had before. I love madrigals. Yeah. All madrigals. <laughs> Even early madrigals. Yeah. So that is super fun, right? Let's see. One more from Jacopo da Bologna. Um, this is Fenice Fu, um, which is about a phoenix, right? Fenice. So a phoenix. Um, and here we go. So you'll notice um, this is uploaded by Pedro Martinez, and you'll notice mm -hmm. that we have a countertenor um, taking the role, of course, of someone who would not be considered a countertenor. Um, yep. So you'll notice, right, um, 
usually musical texts are sort of at a pains to be like, there's nothing in common with the later madrigals. And in, in a sense, that is true. Like the later madrigals, Baroque madrigals have a very, very specific form. And these don't have that yet, right? But uh, to say there's nothing in common is a mm-hmm. little unfair, right? Because you the what makes madrigals so cool, which is kind of their tight harmonies and stuff, um, you do have that, yeah. right? So that is that is working. Um, but yeah, so the Baroque madrigal um, is a different form, right? It is it's its own specific form, and so in that case, it, it is very different from what we're hearing um, because these do not have that same sort of specific requirement form. Um, they're these single voices as opposed to sort of the later medical, which have these, you know, they're these extraordinary, um, I mean, extraordinary sort of polyphony, obviously choral, you know, all this stuff. But um, nonetheless, right, the, it's, um, the Trecento medical is really still an extraordinary form and deserves to be thought of equally, even though it is worth pointing out that the Baroque medical is a different Mm-hmm. is different. Um, to say that they have, have nothing in common is sort of unfair. So, um, yeah. So, all right. Just a tiny bit more of this one. All right. So you do, right? You, you do have this sense, um, really, of what the medical yeah. will eventually become. Uh, it's just, you know, yeah, it's not that yet. But, um, you know. It's it's unfair to to totally tank it. Um, all right. So, uh, quick note that this is this is sort of our medieval thing. For those who are wondering, um, eventually, uh, when we say Baroque, we're really talking. You know, the um, obviously the rise of the Rena- the Renaissance magical does actually happen in the next century. So this is 1300s. It does happen in the 1400s, but it's really when we get into the 1500s that we get what we think of as sort of the big Baroque period. Claudio Monteverdi uh, writes some stuff about madrigals that becomes really kind of, it paves the way. He mm-hmm. helps create opera. I mean, he really <laughs> does a lot. He does a lot. He's he's awesome. We appreciate him. Um, and so I do have a, a tiny bit. Um, here's a Monteverdi madrigal by Total Baroque. Um this is from book eight. So yeah, clearly the multiple harmonies and the it's an entire chorus, right? And the, the multiple vocal lines, um, the multiple parts. We are headed, obviously, into a guy who wrote opera, um, but also into the Renaissance. I mean, that's that's that sound, right? Um, and just a tiny bit more of him. Oh. Yeah, that sounds incredibly yeah. so, more operatic. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So so that's right. So Monteverdi really kickstart what we come to think of as um, the, you know, the Baroque magical. Um, I would like to give a final shout out to England, which really, you'll notice, has been left out of this conversation. We have mentioned everybody else. Um, we haven't talked as much about Spain. As I said, we did talk about them last time. Um, we, of course, have done Italy now. We did a ton of France. Um, <laughs> uh, and of course, France, it's worth pointing out that Germany is We've talked about them, like Hildegard, but also um, 
it's Frankish. So we're France and Germany are having a lot of, you know, stuff. So back and forth. Um, but uh, England, of course, is a backwater. <laughs> this is unfair, but I mean, you know, they don't make it into a lot of these conversations, which is unfair. They haven't quite made it into ours. Um, but it's just that, right, things are moving Mm-hmm. towards them, right? They're moving sort of from Italy and France and Spain and finally, like, up into England. It's this island that's, you know, whatever. It's across the yeah. channel. Blah. Um, so unfair, unfair, but nonetheless, right? This is kind of this feeling. Um, England is certainly looking to everyone else for stuff. I mean, they understand that culture is everywhere else, or there's this feeling. I mean, they do have this sort of inferiority complex that they won't get over until Shakespeare, basically. I mean... And they still like Shakespeare. That's what they got. You know, <laughs> they get Shakespeare. They, they still have theater. But um, this is, of course, unfair. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, they get their, okay. their own Just back musically by the 1960s. So I won't cry for them. Yes. Yes. Forever, I mean, they but... are fine. Yeah. But I do want to give a shout out because they do get magicals. They get them. They understand them. They do them. They do some amazing magicals. And I want to give a shout out to John Dowland, uh, 1563 to or what, 1626 or something. Um, and so we're going to end on a John Dowland madrigal. Um, I want to say we're going to listen <laughs> to somebody else's version. <laughs> um, but I do recommend Sting's version with ludist um, Eden Karmazov from Songs from, from the Labyrinth, the album Song from the Labyrinth, which is a whole John Dowland album that Sting did. Uh, it's <laughs> phenomenal. It's a phenomenal album. Okay. I love it. There's a great version of of this magical on it, um, but anyway. So I guess I'm not that surprised um, to learn that Sting did an entire album of madrigals. Yes, <laughs> he learned the lute. Like he went off. He sort of got tired. He got depressed. He went off and spent a few years learning the lute, uh, particularly from I mean, like Eden Karmazov and stuff. You know, really high class classical lutists, um, and then did this album. He actually did a few. There are a few others. I mean, I love them all, but this one like is really fantastic. Um, and he's also got some own. He did. He um, <laughs> he also did some of his own versions. So we, I think, have commented before on like Hildegard yeah. von Blingen and stuff, right? The um, yeah. Well, Sting took some of his own songs, like Fields of Gold and stuff, and turned them into like oh. John Dowland. Loot songs, yeah, but it's like, but okay. he did his own, right? So it is. It's on this album. I highly recommend it. <laughs> it's nice. really fantastic. Um, it's all around really fantastic, and it's him and Eden Karamazov playing the lute and singing. And Sting, honestly, I really, um, I think John Dolland would be proud. I think he would be pleased. I hope. I do feel like John Dolland probably. I think Sting probably sounded a lot like him. One of the things about the album, um, you know, when it came out, people were like, oh, well, Sting is not a trained, you know, early musicologist, and da-da-da, and he's, you know, he's a singer-songwriter, and his voice is not classically trained. But, you know, neither was Dallin's, presumably. Like, singer-songwriters, this is what they're like, mm-hmm. right? And they perform their own stuff, and then also people who are highly trained perform their stuff, right? But like Dylan, like Leonard Cohen, I mean, I do not think that Jen... Dowland sounded like mm-hmm. Pavarotti or whoever. I mean, <laughs> like, um, like that's just not how these things work, right? So I, I just feel like I recommend Sting's album, "Songs from the Labyrinth." Okay, yeah, John Dowland, <laughs> Sting's John Dowland album with Lutist, even Kermazov. All right, but that's not what we're listening to now. <laughs> 
um, we are in fact going to listen to, because of course it's him, he does do some great harmonies, and it's him doing all the harmonies, which is fantastic. But um, yeah, we're, we're going <laughs> to, we're actually going to listen to um, Prinkip's Musicae uh, instead. Yes, so apologies for that, but here we are. Um. Alright, um, and that could be, of course, Prince Chep's music, I, I realize, because it is okay. mid- medieval. But <laughs> either way. Um, but yeah, so Dowland, this is a great one. Find next for ladies. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, that is the tight English madrigal that we know and love. Um, in high school, I was actually in the group madrigals. It was, for some reason, our high school had a group that just sang madrigals, and it was the best group. <laughs> and I love it. Cool. Because madrigals are amazing. Yes. Um, yeah, and so that is our medieval music. Um, we will, of course, talk more about <laughs> music. I mean, it's not the end, but that is our yes. three-part series going through instruments and notation and temperament and tunings and then finally some of the big musical forms that you may know and love or at least have heard about and wondered about <laughs> what is an antiphon yes yeah um so hopefully we've answered yes. some of those questions all music is now com- concluded yes um well yeah yes, okay well this episode has already gone really long so instead of making witty remarks i'll just uh say thank you all for listening um Thank you uh, for following us along on Facebook, if you do, or on Twitter, which I have just recently learned how to use better. (laughs) Um, Sorry. (laughs) Sorry to everybody who tweeted at us in the last year before I bothered to learn how to use notifications on Twitter. Um, I get it now, so that's cool. (laughs) Um, you can also find us on the internet at askmedievalist.com and view the show notes. You can send us a message through the contact us forum or at questions at askmedievalist.com. Um, and you can always leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast um, provider of choice. I think we're now on a podcast service called pod chaser that you can review us on so i think that's about it yeah and until next time awesome have fun and keep it medieval ask a medievalist is a production of this can't be that hard studios and is not endorsed acknowledged or condoned by virginia commonwealth university or any of its constituent departments our theme music is veni veni venias from carmina burana by carl orff performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? 
For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.